Welcome to our second season of Show Me Archaeology. Our guest today is Dr. Carl Lippo. When I asked for a bio from Dr. Lippo, he didn't fail to provide one that entertained. According to the good doctor, he was born in Wisconsin as a furry badger. He got his undergraduate degree from the University of Wisconsin after finishing his master's degree also at the University of Wisconsin and doing some fieldwork in Pakistan at the ancient city of Harappa, which according to Dr. Lippo has giant mud brick walls, mountains of pottery, steatite seals, and endless lentils. He left the frozen wastelands of Wisconsin for greener pastures in San Francisco and Berkeley. He worked there for a while doing cultural resource management, also called CRM or contract archeology, span for local firms while also taking advantage of a landscape filled with topography, oceans, and big burritos. He learned, however, that doing our CRM could also be somewhat of a grind and that he hankered for doing research. He was influenced heavily by a friend who introduced him to the work of Robert Dunnell. Dunnell, according to Dr. Lippo, was a cantankerous character who advocated strongly that archaeology, if it was to, to survive in the long run, needed to get its act together and produce a falsifiable product that actually contributed to the world. He then turned his attention to Seattle and the University of Washington, where he got his PhD under Donnell, who, Lip who Lippo says he learned an immense amount from, that he was an amazing intellectual and had an amazing mind. Dr. Lippo's research in northeastern Arkansas, just west of Memphis, looked at late pre-contact village deposits of the Mississippi River Valley. He says it was another tough place to work given the poverty, steamy climate, and deep suspicion everyone had regarding the presence of a fast-talking crazy man from Wisconsin. While finishing his PhD, Dr. Lippo says he started doing a lot of web development in Seattle with a couple of friends. They started a company that did work for Microsoft and other companies. One of their crazy projects turned out to be cookierecipe.com, which over time morphed into allrecipes.com. So if you use all recipes, just know that it was made by a bunch of archaeologists who he says had no idea what they were doing. All of his mom's recipes are on the site. If you look up such yummy things as Grandma Winnie's stuffing, you'll find them. Um, Dr. Lippo's first academic job was at California State University, Long Beach, where he taught undergraduate and master's students for about 13 years. He says he also learned to surf poorly. Lippo, once there, thought that he should find some other places to work other than northeastern Arkansas. So he chose the wildest place he could think of, Easter Island or Rapa Nui. He said he'd first learned about Rapa Nui from watching In Search Of, hosted by Leonard Nimoy, and it always seemed to be a place that made everyone go, huh? Starting in 2000, he began working on the island with his colleague, Terry Hunt, from the University of Hawaii, who's also a student at Dunnell. Since then, he's been working there fairly consistently, along with other places like Poverty Point, Louisiana. He has since moved to Binghamton, New York, to experience the pleasures of winter and February in the Northeast. Welcome, Dr. Lippo. Thank you for that fantastic introduction. It sounds like you've done a lot of a bunch of things, and I imagine you have a million stories. Thank you for agreeing to share with us today. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for inviting me to this. I'm happy to talk about archaeology and everything that's uh, I've been up to and what any questions you've got for me. Fantastic. Um, so before we get too deep into the archaeology itself, uh, and since you're our first academic archaeologist, can you lay out for us what that looks like? What's a day or days in the life of a professor of anthropology look like? Do you spend most of your time in the classroom or do you bring students into the field? What's your job like? 
That's a good question. A professor's job is um, something that people often don't really understand because we seem to have an infinite amount of flexible time to do all kinds of crazy stuff. Um, and you know, what do they possibly fill their days up with? The fact is we spend a lot of time uh, preparing uh, for teaching. You know, teaching is a big component of what a professor does. And it takes an immense amount of time. And an hour lecture can take, you know, eight hours of preparation. In fact, you can spend, you know, as much time as imaginable on, on teaching um, for every hour, you know, every hour that you put in the classroom. So there's a lot of time spent doing that, just getting prepared, preparing the material, evaluating stuff that students are doing, um, planning things out. So that's a lot of the work. Um, there's also, uh, you know, the expectations that the university have for professors is doing research. So there's sort of this constant need to be, uh, reading on the literature, finding out what other people are doing, and then preparing for uh, different kinds of research projects and working with students on research projects. So uh, sort of a never ending, you know, conveyor belt of tasks that have to be done over time. So you end up, on the one hand, you know, professors have a very flexible amount of time, but on the other hand, you are never done with anything you're doing. So um, you're free to, you're free not to work, but you're, you also have to work all the time. It's, a, it's the craziest job ever. But I have to say what we get to do to talk about are is really very interesting. So it's the stuff that, you know, really gets us excited about the world uh, and get to share that with students and everybody else, um, which is, you know, can't find a better job than, than that kind of thing where you get to talk about what you really love. That's fantastic. Um, and you get to do research, like you mentioned yeah. in your, your bio. Um, and some of the other jobs we've talked about that doesn't, seem to be as much of a thing. A lot of the the jobs we've talked about so far have, have talked about things like, you know, there's a pipeline coming through. We need to go take care of that there. But what you're doing, I think you're driving a lot of that, right? So um, yeah, just using your creativity to just look at the world or? Um, you know, as an archaeologist, your, your job is to think about how we go about studying the past or under build, build an understanding about the past um, and then training students in thinking about that, how to how can they go about conceiving of the world in such a way that we can learn about history, about the mm -hmm. sequences of things that got us to be where we are. Um, so there's some practical dimensions to that for projects that require this kind of work where you've got, you know, legally there's a requirement to go out and do some work prior to a construction. But it's really an approach to the to thinking about the world that as a, as a professor, you really emphasize for students that thinking about how we know what we know about ourselves and how we got here is a is a challenging exercise that we that that requires sort of creative and and critical thinking about knowledge itself and about the way in which we construct arguments about ourselves. Um, it's an it's an important it's an important it's an important skill that you need to learn how to do because. You think about it. We we construct our own hist histories um, based on tales, things that people tell us, things that we've read. Um, you know, a lot of sources. We have a lot of perspectives on what we think the histor history of ourselves is. In archaeology, your job is to really say, okay, is that are those ideas that we have about ourselves really true? And how would we really know what we? How do we really know what we know is actually the case of what happened in the past? So in an archaeological sense, what we do is we look for the, the empirical record. We look at the stuff. We, you know, we, we love stuff. And the reason why we love stuff is because it, it's actually the, the phenomenon, the, the material that people interacted with in the past. By studying that, we can actually construct 
a series of events that that get us to understand where we are in a way that just isn't a story, but is actually history. And ultimately, that's a really key skill that is useful for lots of things. I mean, there are, you know, in the sense that when we train students, there's a practical dimension in projects like cultural resource management and those kinds of projects. But it's also a way of thinking about how we understand knowledge and thinking about how we generate knowledge, which is what we try to convey to students to say, these are tools you can use to understand your own life and your own the own world and the problems that you're going to experience uh, uh, and, and have to deal with, that these skills are something that you can use to help you understand yourself. Uh, and that makes students who do archaeology incredibly productive um, uh, in, in, a lot, in a wide array of, of careers beyond archaeology itself. But you can start businesses, you can work in government, you can do work in corporations, you can do all kinds of stuff, because that kind of critical thinking is really about understanding knowledge. And that's what is, gives you power, that gives you advantages in the world. So the training is about some of the technical stuff about archaeology, but really the sort of hidden thing behind that is learning how to learn, learning how to figure stuff out. And that's what we try to do, how to, how to solve puzzles. I like that. That's that's good. And then that's I think that that sums up archaeology very well across the board for all aspects of archaeology. Um, from what I understand of at least some of your work, you take a different approach to learning about the past than what people might ordinarily think when they think archaeology. It's not Indiana Jones with you running through hidden temples or, um, you know, digging perfectly square holes. Um you take a pretty technologically savvy approach. Could you talk a bit about what that's like and maybe give us some more details of the work you're currently doing? Sure. Um, I mean, I take the first, the first sort of, you know, principle from my, from my own work and the student, you know, so the principles that I convey to students is that the past matters. Um, and the reason why it matters is because it's the series of events that led us to be who we are today. And understanding the past means we understand the, the advantages, disadvantages, the landscape in which unfolded to be the present, which gives us understanding of why the world is the way it is. Why is the distribution of wealth the way it is? Why is the, why is the distribution of diversity, whether that's cultural, linguistic, um, um, or sociological, why does it look the way it does? Because understanding that why part allows us to understand what we can do in the future to shape it in a direction we'd like to go. If, it, if we understand how it got here, we can do something about the future. And ultimately, I think the study of the past is about the future. Um, it's it's more about the past happened, right? People in the past are not here to really care about it. The descendants of those people are here. And what we really want to do is bring that knowledge, you know, actual knowledge, empirical knowledge to bear, to help in the future. How do we shape ourselves now to get us to where we want to go in terms of the communities and, and the families and the, and the landscapes in which we want to live? Um, so I think archaeology is, is, is really about that future than it is more about the past, although we study the past to do that. A um, little counterintuitive. People often think the past is about just exploring the past because it's cool. And certainly there's some cool things. The past isn't the present. So it has stuff that went on in the past that isn't happening today, which makes it particularly interesting. But really that understanding the conditions that led to that past is really about, I think, in the future. Doing that, though, requires sort of thinking about the product you generate. You need to be able to understand, to generate information about the archaeological record, about the past, that can be produced knowledge that's falsifiable. How can you be, how can you make a claim about the past that can be wrong? We can tell a lot of stories about the past. I mean, there's, a there's an infinite number of stories. Some of them are really fantastical. Some of them are boring. Uh, some of them are just interpretations of ourselves. 
Uh, you can tell lots of stories about the past, but the question is, how do you tell a story about the past that can be wrong, that you know you're wrong when you, do, you can be proven wrong? That's a challenge. It's a huge challenge because, you know, the, the fact is the past already happened. So you're construct, you have to construct a series of descriptions about the past, it, about the, really about the present, the archaeological record as you see it, that can only be explained in one way. And if it's not true, then you'll be able to see that it's something's not true and show that it's wrong. Um, so, so that's the way I approach the archaeology, which is, which is really, really a big challenge. Uh, there's, you know, how do, how do we distinguish between correct answers and wrong answers? Um, so that's the first step. The second step is the archaeological record, because it is about the past, the series of events that let that ultimately produce the present that we can now study today, um, is that 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 record is a, a finite record. It exists in its configuration and represents the past in it in a very fragile sense that it it's the it's the things in the relationship between things that we see today that can tell us about the past. The problem is that when we go and interact with that by digging a hole or picking stuff up and putting it in a museum, we disturb it, which means that we've wrecked the record we're trying to study. So that's a challenge to any archaeologist that, you know, we can go and do all kinds of stuff. But as we do it, we're sort of erasing the record that we're most interested in recovering. Um, the way around that is to use technology, to, to use means of studying the, the archaeological record, which means studying the landscape today in ways that don't damage it, that allows us to repeat analyses over and over again uh, to the greatest degree possible. In the past, archaeologists used sort of techniques that were fairly destructive. And so what most people think about archaeology is about digging giant holes and digging stuff up and looking at stratigraphic relationships. And there's certainly value for that kind of work under certain with for certain questions that you're trying to answer. But it isn't the way in which archaeology is done. It's just one of the ways in which you can do archaeology. Since then, um, archaeologists develop and in other in other disciplines a variety of different uh, tools that we can use to bring to bear to study the archaeological record. Things that are non-destructive, and that's so. That's my focus is on is how do we first generate information about the archaeological record that can answer these questions in a very particular way, so that we can get falsifiable results out of it. Secondarily, how do we do that in a way that doesn't wreck the record that we're trying to study in the first place, so that other people can come and validate our findings and, and show that they're correct or or potentially wrong, and, and, and sort of advance our, our our knowledge about the world. What we do is we try to bring in as many techniques as possible that allow us to do what's called remote sensing. Um, uh, starting with, say, satellite imagery, where you take um, you know platforms that are above our head and use satellites uh, to document the landscape, uh, aerial photography whenever possible. Um, UA, these days, uh, drones and UAVs with cameras and different kinds of sensors on it. Um, all these are tools that allow us to learn about the landscape without us having to actually go touch it and mess around with it. Then there's a whole series of other techniques like um, ground penetrating radar, magnetometry, resistivity, conductivity, um, that allow us to actually look at the composition of the record below the ground, again, without actually damaging or altering the record at all. So my focus has been a lot on this technology because I think it provides a way of getting lots of information uh, over large areas relatively cheaply, and most importantly, to do so without wrecking it. So we can then build an understanding about the past try to explain it, uh, and then allow other people to come back and actually reevaluate what we're doing with new ideas and new thoughts that might allow us to advance our knowledge. And ultimately, it creates a way of doing you know, what 
what my advisor would say, the, the science of archaeology, to do archaeology in a real science sense, not just a storytelling sense. So in the the way the scientific method tells people you've got to test it and be able to prove it again and again, this yeah. allows you or someone else to come back and check your sites and then and prove. Yeah. That's that's neat. Um, so some of the the methods that you're talking about, they're sort of like a game of battleship, right? I mean, they're they're sending, yeah, you know, essentially rays into the earth and it bounces back and it gives you shapes and things like that. I mean, could you talk about some of these tools sure. and technologies, I guess? What's what's your favorite, I guess, of all of them? And um well I don't know if people if people remember these days the first um uh Jurassic Park. Remember in the very beginning of the first Jurassic Park, they have the sensor that they stick on a, some rocks and then they beam it in, they press a button and it images a dinosaur in Burying Rock. Of course, that is remote sensing and allows people to visualize the, the what's under the ground. Unfortunately, none of the technologies is as fancy as what is. It doesn't work that way. <laughs> you can't actually sort of image things in, under the ground. What you get is information about the subsurface, whether it's compositional or or spatial sort of shapes of things. Um, that then you have to try to explain using um, understanding the phenomenon that you're you're studying as well as the technique they're using. It's a lot. It's more, more fuzzy than that, but. Mm-hmm. But that's the kind of idea. The idea is that you would use some kind of um, uh, measuring some kind of attribute, electromagnetic attribute that potentially could tell you about uh, the ground. One of my favorites is magnetometry. Magnetometry is a technique, uh, very, very simple. It's essentially a very, very sensitive metal detector. It measures variability in the Earth's magnetic field um, that you use basically walking on the surface, carrying this very sensitive uh, sensor that's measuring variability in the Earth's magnetic field as you walk back and forth across the surface. And what it so what it's doing is just measuring the intensity of, of the Earth's magnetic field at any point in space. The Earth's magnetic field is driven by the Earth itself, so there's a large magnetic field, uh, that's also influenced by local phenomenon. So it's things beneath the surface will, ha- will either strengthen or weaken the Earth's magnetic field to a tiny amount. Um, the addition of metal certainly will burn material will do that organic matter and other kinds of things will will affect the earth's magnetic field at a very small amount so if you use a very sensitive sensor and walk back and forth you can see areas of high magnetic field and low magnetic field that indicate the stuff that's beneath the ground going going back and forth over um you know say well tens or hundreds of meters back and forth in a grid-like pattern ultimately can produce a map of what's beneath the surface and there's just a lot of archaeological stuff i should say there's a lot of things that humans do to the landscape that produces magnetic signatures. For example, dropping um, dropping metal objects would obviously um, uh, create a, a magnetic signature. Uh, those the, it would be a concentrated area of of, of influence on the magnet, Earth's magnetic field. But burned areas often have a magnetic signature. So a hearth or a burned house or that kind of thing can have a magnetic signature that can tell you where uh, a hearth might have been. Uh, in relationship to other kinds of, of stuff. Other materials like piles of rocks might have um, either enhanced magnetic field or uh, reduced magnetic field. Um, and organic matter. Organic matter has small amounts of iron in it that enhances the magnetic field. And so by putting all, by, you know, measuring these, these this this variability in the Earth's magnetic field, you can basically produce maps of, of the subsurface, which can reveal patterns of house construction, um, patterns of uh, where hearths were, uh, where kilns might have been, 
um, other kinds of walls and, and materials without ever touching the ground, without having only just measuring this very small Earth's magnetic field can produce f fantastic things. Um, what's great about it is it's you could it's fast. You can cover hundreds of meters in in a day. Um, you can it it's non-destructive uh, and produces this fantastic spatial map, which would have cost you know many many orders of magnitude more money to excavate and would have resulted in the destruction of the archaeological record if you actually did, had to do that uh, so it's really a fantastic technique and really archaeologists are always looking for new ways new new technology that can do this kind of stuff um, additional other kinds of techniques look at um, the resistance of the soil subsurface how it varies in terms of its composition and its resistance to electricity uh, it, you can measure um, as you mentioned like send radar down into the ground and measure it being reflected off the subsurface. Uh, there's lots of different techniques that can do this kind of stuff. And so as an archeologist, I'm particularly interested in exploring as many of those as possible. And you always bringing those to bear whenever we can, because that is really the future of archeology, span uh, being able to generate that information without doing, without all the destructive parts of it. Sounds really complicated. Um, and I would assume that each site is different and how it might do each of these things. Is that, is that right? Yeah, you never know. I mean, the fact is, always try. <laughs> you never know what you're going to learn. Uh, and and it's always best to use as many different techniques as possible. So the more you know about all the possible ones, some of them may be more effective under some conditions than other. For example, if there's a lot of, if you're in a lot of gravel with lots of mixed materials, it may mask all the variability you're looking for. So you need to have, you know, try other techniques that might reveal what you're, you're seeing. So it really depends on the context. So how does this work in for your work in Rapa Nui and Poverty Point? So uh, Poverty Point um, is a fantastic, one of the most mind blowing places you can go to in North America. It's, I don't know if, uh, out of people, people, not many people go there because it's in Northern Louisiana, uh, part of Louisiana you would never think of going to because it's five hours from New Orleans and several hours from Jackson, Mississippi. Uh, it's really on the edges of Arkansas. But it's the most incredible archaeological deposit. It's just, it's sort of, it's really mind blowing. Um, it, it's an archaic uh, deposit. It dates to about 1500 BC or so. Um, an area that was occupied for several hundred years in this area of northern uh, Louisiana. It was occupied by pre-contact people who were hunter gatherers. They were foragers, hunter gatherers that were large, were what we what we believe were mobile populations, basically these mobile hunter gatherers moving across the landscape, gathering wild foods. At this particular place, though, they gathered on some regular basis uh, to form gigantic mound structures and to do massive earth um, uh, earth generate giant earthworks. Uh, the the site has um, uh, rings that are you know hundreds of meters or ridges uh, on which people lived that were hundreds of meters across. Uh, and, a, and a massive mound, Mound A, which is 72 meters or uh, 72 feet high, 300 feet, uh, just a gargantuan mound constructed by hunter-gatherer hunter populations. One of the earliest mounds, some of the earliest mounds in, in North America, um, just a spectacular place. On this landscape, we're talking about, um, you know, uh, half a mile or more a, a sort of in diameter of this deposit is just gargantuan. It's huge. So there's really no way to, to to study that kind of landscape that's been human modified without using traditional techniques. You could never excavate it. It would take 
100,000 years to excavate one by one units across it. I mean, there's just more stuff there than than it's, that's imaginable. So you really have to bring as, as many different kinds of techniques uh, as possible that can generate information across those scales uh, in ways that are, are non-damaging. It's a World Heritage Site, so it's recognized as being unique and sort of an important part of cultural heritage. Um, so you really want to do it in a way that doesn't cause damage. So remote sensing is, is definitely the way to do it. So in that that deposit, we've been doing is using uh, magnetometry and ground penetrating radar in order to look at the subsurface. A lot of what you see on the surface today, like most, like much of um, the Midwest, um, doesn't. There, there's there. It reflects what was going on in the past, but there's also been a lot of historic changes to it over time due to um, you know drainage of of um, of swampy areas. Uh, and farming, farming is uh, radically altered. And this this mound itself, Powery Point, was um, uh, was farmed. So the land surface itself, kind of, you know, you can see the mounds and other things, but you can't really tell what the subsurface composition looks like by looking on the surface. Remote sensing allows you to do that. So what we do is doing magnetometry. We can see additional features that people uh, people made in the past that are that are now buried. Um, large um, uh, post circles, essentially giant. Um, uh, sort of like henges, uh, like a wood henge with uh, circles that consisting of large tree posts that were planted by or placed in the ground by uh, pre-contact populations. Uh, you can see in the magnetometry data, even though on the ground all you see is grass um, and, and nothing else, uh, we can see uh, ridge structures, we can see mounts or mounds that are, are now covered up. Uh, we can see all kinds of things that are part of that landscape that tells us about the activities that people were doing on, on the um, on the site, all again without uh, excavation or, or destruction of it. So um, we've also been doing um, ground penetrating radar there, looking at the structure of the mound A, the large mound that's in the center of the site, to try to understand its structure and how it was constructed uh, and if there were if there were stages in which that led to this gigantic mountain that you see today, really, you know, what we're trying to do is, is is break apart the historical parts to figure out what events, what series of events took place over what period of time in order to construct what we see in the present. Because understanding those series of events understands gives us an understanding of the rate at which people were coming back to this place and constructing it over and over again in order to to make what we see in the present. Remote sensing is really key for doing that. So that so poverty point is a great example of the kind of studies that really aren't possible without other with other kinds of techniques. It's just too large and too complex to do it with, you know, just traditional excavation and stuff like that. So is this sort of like a pilgrimage site? I mean, is this a place people seem to be coming back to and then altering every you know few years, or is it? I mean, like how long did it? Do they know how, or do you know how long it took for them? To, it's a it's a great question. I mean. I mean, what's interesting is hunter-gatherers <laughs> doing their thing. I mean, these aren't large, huge populations. These are, you know, what, what we we actually don't know the population size, but uh, presumably it wasn't giant, dense populations. Um, you know, otherwise moving across the landscape, following the, the resources that were available to them, probably on some seasonal basis. But for some reason, they were gathering at this place large enough populations to do massive amounts of earthworks um, on a regular basis and then going off on the other parts of the year to do their foraging thing. We don't really know the basis on which they were, how often they were there um, and how, how we, you know, the assumption is it's at least seasonal. Um, it may have been, they may have been spending more, like how much time they're spending, we actually don't know. It was, 
the activity was took place over several hundred years. So it's 500 years of probably occupation, um, which is a pretty long period of time for lots of work. So it's not as though it's, it's short term in one sense of the pre-contact history of, of the Mississippi Valley. But it's also short in the context of, of they did a lot in that, that short period of time. Um, it's, um, uh, but there's a lot to figure out. It's really anomalous. What's cool is that it, it represents, it represents the activity that human, that, well, let's, let's back up a second. A lot of times when our people see fancy giant mounds and stuff like that, they assume that that people would only invest in building giant earthen mounds or pyramids or other kinds of structures if, in fact, there was sort of a, a, a administrative organizational structure that made them do it, that people don't want to do that kind of stuff. because So like taxes or... Yeah, like taxes. If someone's that. forcing you to do that. With these hunter-gatherers groups, it's pretty clear that it couldn't have been an administrative structure forcing anybody to do anything because these people could go off and do whatever they wanted and go across the landscape to get food they needed from wherever they needed to get it. Instead, there was some value, some added advantage that, that brought them together that made them want to do this, that there was a, there was a value to these. That cooperative efforts, the idea of getting together on a seasonal basis provided benefits to those people that participated in that. Um, in other words, that there are conditions, cooperation among people can take place without having centralized governments or top-down authority. Uh, and that poverty points a great example of, of what looks like that to be the case. Easter Island, as it turns out, in the middle of the Pacific is another fantastic case of that kind of cooperative activity. Do you want to explain more about that? that most people, when they think Easter Island, they think of the big heads, right? Yeah. I mean, do you want to explain, Was yeah. is it just big heads? But that's there. Are there other things going on? So Easter Island is the most is is a fascinating place. I mean, it's, and like as you, you mentioned in my bio, um, when I was a kid, I saw Leonard Nimoy's um, In Search of series, which uh, um, when I was I know it affected me as a kid because the, he in the in the series they presented these images of these statues on this island in the middle of the Pacific, um, gigantic statues, thirty feet tall, some of them, and hundreds and hundreds of these statues. And in in the in the series, the, the question came up, it's like, well, why would people do this? It's the least likely place that anyone would go and build gigantic, huge three-story statues. I mean, it's the least likely place that you would build one of those statues, much less hundreds of them. Uh, and it always was the thing that struck me as a kid, like, why would people do that? Why would people have done that kind of thing in those kinds of places? Um, which to me was an interesting question because I thought at the time, like, well, they must have done it for some good reason. Like people don't do stuff because it's crazy. At least they don't, they might do it once as it's crazy or twice, but you don't do it for hundreds of years over and over and over again. There's gotta been some value to it. Um, and it's the most, so it's, the, it's really the most paradoxical archeological case you can think of. This island is 1500 miles, 2000 miles off the coast of Chile, it's thousands of miles from other uh, Pacific islands, really remote. And it's only about 10 by 12 miles across. It's like a tiny little speck in the middle of the Pacific. Yet on this island, there's like nearly a thousand of these gigantic statues all constructed by pre-contact people, Rapa Nui people, um, who still live on the island today and still speak Rapa Nui, uh, that their ancestors built these statues. So the question for me was like, why would why would people do that? We've got to figure this out. So, um, so that, you know, once I had the opportunity to study something when I got to Cal State Long Beach when I first got my academic job, 
I was able to sort of say, well, what, what, where do I want to study that isn't the Mississippi Valley? And so Easter Island is the one that first came to mind. And so I was like, I'm going to go there, um, try to figure out like, why would this, why would this history have taken place? Well, it turns out that these statues, and this is after 20 years of the last research, appear to not be about top-down control and resources. You know, like there's no chief telling people to make these statues. Instead, what we've learned is that the population starting at about 1200 AD up through European contact in 1722 when the when the Dutch arrived uh, made these statues as part of family and kin group level sort of organization where they got together to cooperate to construct these statues. Multiple groups were doing this at the same time across the island and that the cooperative effort was key to the survival and success of the populations of the island that by gathering together to help to make these and move these statues it actually benefited those groups that did so to make living on this remote island with limited resources uh, possible. In fact, it was the key to their success. So, so it's really it, team building. It's really team building. In fact, and so what's interesting is Mississippi Valley, like Poverty Point, uh, is is very analogous to East Island. That activity, the cooperative activity has value to those groups that participate in it, making life better for them, those that did that than those that did not. And it's the same case on East Island that the statues there really are about team building and about success of people. The craziest thing, the craziest solution you can think of, like if you're going to be on an island, and you're going to do team building. Why would you build a giant statue? But it made sense to them and it actually had that benefit. Um, these, the statue building is very consistent with what Polynesians were doing um, uh, in terms of building giant stone uprights and ancestor uh, sort of honorific ancestor uh, valuation. Um, so this was something that just became very, very important to these people on this island, given the conditions that they were living. Uh, it's really a fantastic story of human ingenuity and success, despite incredible odds and, and unlikeliness uh, for that kind of thing to happen there. That's that's amazing. And I, I like the the intergenerational shared experiences, too, because it's, you know, there's something kind of beautiful about that. And, and knowing that these people are kind of cooperating with each other, but they're also passing these things down over time. And, and how do the, the people today, I guess the indigenous peoples of Louisiana and the indigenous peoples in Rapa Nui, I mean, do they have memories of some of these early projects that they were working together? Or do they have questions that you guys help answer as well? Well, both, both places have the challenges that many indigenous people have, which is the disconnect between the present and the past. Um, in the case of, of Poverty Point, I mean, this is 1500 BC. So not only do we have the fact it's deep in, you know, the archaic, so thousands of years, uh, we also have the disconnect with the arrival of Europeans and the changes that went on with that. So um, there are bits and pieces of, of understanding, I think, that are in, in native traditions related to the use of landscapes like this. Uh, but there's a lot of disconnect and it's sort of hard to, to piece together. Rapa Nui is more recent than that, um, and um, uh, but yet still suffered from many of the same disconnects. Europeans, they arrived, as I said, uh, about 1200 AD uh, on the island, Polynesian people uh, were there, you know, still live there, Polynesian people still living on the island today, still speaking Rapa Nui, having traditions. But Europeans arrived in 1722, um, and things radically changed as a consequence of disease uh, and other historic events that that really decimated the population. Uh, the population was about, you know, um, 112 people, 111 people in 1877. Um, 
And the entire population since then has grown as a result of, you know, from that, those small numbers of people uh, that were sort of census at that period in time. So there's a really kind of a, a bottleneck effect of knowledge that gets passed on that, you know, was being passed on from uh, parent to child over time. But then when you get down to such a small population, a lot of information would have been lost. Mm-hmm. That said, there still is a lot of continuity because it is, it's more recent traditions. Um, so there's bits and pieces in oral traditions in storytelling that gets passed on that are still present in the in the modern population. This is an area which I think archaeology has a contribution to make in, in this because um, there's a lot of interest in the past and the, and the ancestors, and there's sort of an awareness. There's certain a degree of awareness among Rapa Nui people that their knowledge of the past is isn't isn't full. I mean that that they there's knowledge loss, and that the archaeology has values. As we study the past, we can learn more about sort of the clever things that ancestors did um, that main people may not have been aware of, or if they were aware of it, which again, there is a lot of information encoded in, in oral traditions. Um, it's never been sort of put into the context of sort of daily life and and, under, and that kind of understanding. So that's a really interesting dialogue that we've been working with Rapa Nui people in helping using the archeological knowledge to contribute towards their heritage. Uh, and I see it's, it, you know, it's really a partnership that we have. Um, that's, I mean, so, I mean, it's understandable, I guess, that, you know, when you're in survival mode, there are some things that you focus on and some things that you don't. And it's kind of, I think, a sort of restorative justice sort of thing, it sounds like, that you're talking about or you're trying to help them, I guess, match the stories that they have that were able to trickle down with the, the things that they see around them. So that's that's kind of really, that's amazing work. Um, very neat. How are you doing your remote sensing in on Rapa Nui? But, I mean, what's cool about Rapa Nui is, I mean, so the story, the famous story of Rapa Nui, which is, I mean, there, there's there's truth in it and there's falseness in the traditional story. The truth is that when people got to the island, uh, it had had tr- lots of vegetation, trees, palm trees that lived to, that were on the island, and then over time, people would chop those trees down, burn them down, uh, leading to a very open landscape. Uh, that's true. Uh, there were, was a large palm forest. We, we can see in the pollen record, you know, presence of trees. Uh, and then by the time Europeans arrived, there's basically, de- it's deforested, right? The argument has always been that, um, that traditionally, had, which really comes from a Western perspective, is that this was an ecological catastrophe that people chopped trees down and leading to the demise of the native people on the island, that as they chopped trees down, they were losing resources that led to this tiny population when Europeans arrive in 1722, they see about 3,000 people. And, and Europeans are sort of agog at how few people there are relative to the numbers of statues on the island. And they assume that there must have been many more people at one point in time, because it would, from their perspective, would have required a lot more people to make all those statues. The, what we've learned since then this ecolog- is that the ecological story, this narrative of, of quote-unquote collapse is wrong. Uh, and, and that while trees did get chopped and burned down, uh, it led to actually increases of productivity through opening the landscape up for farming, which is what, pe- what people used to survive. They they grew sweet potatoes. Um, and that that actually was very sustainable. And there were and it just turns out that there were never really 3,000 people, more than 3,000 people on that one. It's probably the maximum population based on our understanding of the, the, Euro- the European accounts, as well as looking at the archaeological record. Um, there just weren't that many more people. The reality is that people were just very smart in moving statues. They were just good at it and were able to do so very efficiently 
And we did, we've done research about how they move the statues and show that that can be done with relatively small numbers of people. The cool thing about that from an archaeology perspective is that the loss of the forest means that the landscape is fairly open and the archaeological record is on the surface. Excuse me. Um, some water here. Which makes it great for remote sensing. So remote sensing using UAVs um, allows you to image the surface and map the archaeological record that's on the surface uh, without having to walk around and trying to map things manually. So we've been using for the past uh, 10 years, or longer than that, <laughs> we've been we've been using as many different remote sensing techniques as possible on Rapa Nui to document that record. Since it's mostly on the surface, um, you know, photogrammetry and other kinds of uh, techniques using drones, we originally started actually using kites. So we've been pushing this as, since in 2007, I think we we're using kites with cameras on them. Then we're using hydrogen blimps on the island to <laughs> document it. And then with the advent of all these drone technology, we've added in all kinds of, you know, commercial drones now. Um, we've been using that, those kind of approaches to really document the record and map the map the resources of the archaeological resource on them. Uh, so we've been, you know, using that kind of remote sensing technique. And the key thing there is that the, the archaeology is literally distributed across the entire island. Uh, and that you really can only understand it by looking at it spatially, looking at where things are, where things aren't, the different classes of artifacts that are everywhere to understand the relationship that people had in terms of their use of the landscape uh, with the resources on the landscape. So we've been using those techniques to figure this out. Um, so yeah, so in many ways, the archaeology there can only really be done using these sort of modern techniques. Are there logistical challenges when you're trying to bring um, students or equipment or hydrogen balloons to some of these places? Yeah, uh, yeah. It you know, Rapa Nui. People think about Rapa Nui as being. I mean, it is really remote. It's it's four hour flight from Santiago, four five hour flight from Santiago. Uh, but there's a daily flight. There are hotels. It's a fantastic place to visit. There's great food. Fantastic people. Um, but you know, being that remote means. Um, you better have all the firmware downloaded on your computer and everything that you need because your access to anything is really difficult. There is internet access on the island. There's been for a little while, uh, but the bandwidth is so low that you're, you know, you go bananas with the technology trying to keeping things running. Um, uh, but you know, you, that's why you, you, you're at, you know, you plan ahead, you back up everything, you make sure you've got duplicates of everything. Uh, and then you need to go multiple times. So we've been going, you know, once a year for the past 20 years uh, because you, it's a just a never ending process of going, trying, failing, trying again, succeeding, trying over and over again. And we keep bringing new technology. I mean, technology has advanced so much that where we started with doing using kites to document the, the surface where we, where we could only go where the wind would take us, <laughs> limited our ability to cover stuff. And now with drones, you can literally cover everything in immense, incredible detail, exactly what you want to do. So we've always been adding on to our knowledge over, over the years. That's fantastic. Um, so there are some folks out there who might discourage their kids from going down the archaeology or anthropology road when they go off to school. Um, you said your mentor and your PhD program wanted archaeology to contribute to the world in real ways. Yeah. Why... Is what you do important? And do you think, um, or do you think, and how does what you do benefit the world around us? Well, I think, I mean, for any archaeologist, um, they have to understand, 
I think they have to have an answer to that question. I think every archaeologist doing archaeology has to say, why does this matter? Because, you know, the past is the past. Let's worry about the future. But as I said before, I think <clears throat> the past, understanding the past is, is a key to understanding the future. Uh, that those critical skills and the knowledge we generate from the past allows us to do things in the in the future to avoid problems, to avoid making the same mistakes, and to design new kinds of uh, solutions to the problems we have. So uh, I think archaeology, you know, that's fundamental archaeology. I think for parents who might have, you know, an archaeologist, a, a kid that's interested in archaeology, I think they need to be aware that um, archaeology, being trained in archaeology doesn't mean you're not doomed to be a, you know, poorly paid cab driver or now Uber <laughs> driver uh, who's got, you know, esoteric knowledge about something that no one cares about, but being paid at Uber, you know, being an Uber driver price, um, that those skills are actually incredibly valuable uh, for all aspects of life uh, that, um, that being a critical thinker and in, in solving complicated, tough problems is a skill that employers really demand. I mean, being now a faculty member at, the, at a, you know, a state school uh, and where we deal with a lot of liberal arts students, I really do see the value of that liberal arts education and see that liberal arts, liberal arts students, even though they're in obscure sort of majors, end up being more successful than their science or engineering counterparts in the long run. It may take a while, uh, but those critical thinking skills are ultimately incredibly valuable for everything they want to do. I should say that allrecipes.com that we created as grad students was done by a bunch of archaeologists. Its success only, I think, success came from not because we knew anything about anything, but the the, the way in which we approach problems and trying to solve them uh, through our educate, you know, sort of our archaeological education, gave us a lot of ability to do things that I think were counterintuitive to a, would have been counterintuitive to a business major or somebody who's who's wanted a more traditional pathway. Um, so you can do amazing things. Um, so I think realize that archaeology degree is really training you to be just a, a really competent person able to do lots of stuff. Um, and and that that's a so it's a, it's a good degree. Um, going back to the archaeology question, I, mean, I think to me, I think, that, you know, I worry about I wouldn't want to do this job if it was just about my entertaining myself about esoteric bits in the past. I really do think that that archaeology has the potential and has actually sort of a requirement to, to do things about ourselves today and in the future. Um, people in the past were successful. I think one thing we have to realize is that we often think about the past as being people who are dumber than us because they're like, oh, they're in the past. So they're they didn't know anything. Right. Well, they survived for thousands of years. Uh, you know, doing what they did in the way that they did it that was consistent with their lives at that point in time. It's not because they were stupid. It's because it, they didn't need the things that we need because they figured out other solutions given their con conditions. We have a lot to learn from those people. In fact, more than we even we 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 we, we like to admit. Um, they had to deal with shortages and and problems that you know would would totally baffle us. We couldn't survive with them. We have a we 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 assume a lot of superiority, which is just really un you know, unwarranted superiority about our, our ancestors. On Rapa Nui, for example, what we, we can learn from them is the fact that here you here's here's a group of people isolated on an island that's only 10 by 12 miles across from thousands of miles from anything else, in which there are no there's no plan B uh if something if you run out of something. If you ran out of food on East, on Rapa Nui in the past, that was it. Game over. Like there isn't another island you could jump to to get the food. You had to figure it out for food for your family and the resources you needed every day 
for their entire lives, for generations. They figured it out. Figuring out how they did it provides us understanding about how we could do it. For example, the 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 value of cooperative activities, un, unrelated in a direct sense from making more food, ultimately had more had more value than if they had separated and just tried to grow more food. That the cooperative, the sharing and the cooperative activities actually made more sustainable communities than those that didn't. Sustainability on an island like that really matters. How do you come up with a solution that's going to deal with um, unpredictability and shortfalls and all kinds of things that are going to happen in a way that allow you to persist over long periods of time. They figured it out. These are solutions and, and, and challenges that we face today. Our communities aren't built to be cooperative. Our communities, if anything, we've we've become dis more disassociated with our neighbors than ever before in all of human history. We don't know our neighbors. So when things get tough, we don't even know who to turn to. Things like building cooperative efforts like mounds or statues can be activities that bring people together that otherwise wouldn't do so. Um, so there's value in cooperative activities that will ultimately make us more resilient and more successful in the future. With climate change and other things, the uncertainty that comes with climate change, this, this the unpredictability is what's really going to be a problem. Things are going to be tough. Floods are going to happen. Droughts are going to happen. Food's going to fail. Other things are going to happen. And we need to be able to work together as communities in order to resolve that. There are fantastic lessons to be learned from our past as people had figured this out in the past. And I think that's where archaeology can really provide a lot of valuable information. Um, I think Rapa Nui is a fantastic case. And there are many, many others. You know, Really, the history is filled with success, the success of our ancestors. And we need to learn from them because ultimately we're going to be facing the same kinds of problems. an incredibly powerful statement, I think. Um, I guess at the end of the day, that seems like a really important takeaway for, I think, anyone listening. Um, so if someone wanted to be you when they grew up, how would they go about it? And what advice would you share with them about, you know, how they might start thinking about the world as an archaeologist? Well, first, I mean, what I always encourage your students is um, learn everything. <laughs> and you never, the, the fact is, you don't, you never know what's going, the future is going to take, where the future is going to take you. That your your job as a as a as an undergraduate or high school student is to learn as many different skills as you possibly can. Um, you know, uh, try everything you possibly can because you just don't know. Having this diverse array of of things you can you can take advantage of. It's going to make you more successful if you, than if you didn't. Um, so for me, for example, well, the, the all recipes dimension is like the computer programming I did uh, as a part-time job, um, you know, that I learned as part of academics became a, a way of making money that allowed me to be successful in, in different ways. That ultimately gave me the skills to do all the photogrammetry and the other stuff that I'm doing in my academic job. I wouldn't have predicted you know, if I had talked to any of the faculty members back then about what they learned, um, they might not have suggested me to go do that. Right? But, the, you know, to take those particular, be as diverse as possible. But I think you really need to like take advantage of everything that's available. Um, so that's the first thing. Uh, learn, learn programming, learn coding, learn art skills, learn uh, language skills, learn um, accounting skills, 
just cooking skills, everything you possibly can. Just be be a be a sponge on everything because you just never know what kind of creative problems, what how you're going to be able to solve problems later on with the skills that you bring to bear. Um, travel. I think that's another thing. I think everyone needs to see that their world is an incredibly small slice of the diversity that the world consists of. And that having a better understanding of the diverse array in which people are approaching problems gives you a, a great insight into the to different ways to approach things that may seem insolvable at, at, at whatever place that you're in. Uh, that everything, any challenge that you see in your own life uh, will have been solved by other people with different approaches uh, and that you can learn from them. So that's sort of like, the archaeology of ourselves in a, in a modern sense that use travel and uh, talking to people and interacting with other people as a way of figuring out, um, you know, finding solutions to your to problems that you face. Um, you know, I think learning about the past is sort of be be uh, be critical of it. Um, when you hear crazy stories like Graham Hancock's story about like ancient civilizations that predate. Um, you know, 10,000 years ago, whatever, be critical of that. How does he think he knows that? Is there really evidence that he suggests? Are archaeologists really trying to hide something uh, from the world? Uh, things that would make them, they would love to talk about if they were true. Why would anybody want to do that? Be critical about the knowledge that we have about um, ourselves. And that's true for academics too. I, I mean, I think you know, we need to challenge uh, claims that people, archaeologists make about themselves, but we need to do it in a way that says, um, sets up the demands like, well, if that's true, then what's the evidence? Uh, what's what's the relationship between those claims and the actual world? Most of most fantastical claims fail when it comes to that. That they say the lack of evidence is evidence. Lack of evidence is not evidence, right? Uh, that we need to explain what we see, and that's true for whether you're an academic or not an academic in any claim that's being made. Um, I think that's you know that's a really critical skill that, and that's basic. That's a basic skill of being a scientist in general. Uh, is understanding how to critically think about claims that people are trying to tell you. Um, I always try to tell my students that everything you read or hear about is is someone else trying to sell you something. And you need to understand what they're trying to sell you and why they're trying to sell you that. Uh, really be critical of things in a way that's that's uh, not conspiracy oriented, but sort of in a, in a logical, challenging, critical thinking kind of way. Um, so those kinds of skills are useful for both archaeology and then anything else anyone wants to do. And so that's, I guess that's sort of, in my opinion, the what makes archaeologists particularly successful in life is that you you have to think about the world and that critical thinking, and that by critically thinking of any problem, you can do amazing things with that. Um, if folks wanted to learn more about your work in Rapa Nui or elsewhere, is there a place they should look or something that they should read that yes. they can... So there's a great, um, I don't know, it's great, but yeah, there's a Nova documentary, uh, 2012, um, filmed by National Geographic and Nova that they can find online. If you go to YouTube, I think you can find a mystery, the mystery of Easter Island. Um, I think it's available on Amazon Prime, um, but it documents sort of our our how we came to learn about how the statues were constructed and moved, um, which was a lot of fun to make to sort of get it, be involved with in solving that problem. Um, there's a book called The Statues That Walk that my colleague Terry Hunt and I wrote uh, that sort of also documents that history. Um, it was a, it was really an unfold. I mean, our interest in Easter Island was about this, you know, why did this remarkable thing happen on this island? Why did people make the statue? 
we didn't go there trying to debunk anything that anyone was trying to say that, you know, this claim that the, the collapse narrative, sort of this story of disaster, ecological disaster that, that um, was happened on the island purportedly. Uh, we didn't go there thinking that was wrong. We just went there trying to figure out, well, what happened? Like, let's look at the actual evidence. It turns out that what most people thought about the island was wrong, but it wasn't the way we, we didn't start there. So the book kind of documents how we came to sort of question that, sort of go like, wait, this doesn't make any sense. And if that's true, then this can't be true. And if that's not true, then that can't, and sort of unfold all that. And the whole story sort of unraveled uh, as we sort of put the empirical pieces together and said, well, there's no way that sequence of events could have happened. Uh, there's just no evidence for that. Instead, this is what most likely happened. And that's our best understanding. And, you know, as a result, we've changed this narrative for that that island, which is really fantastic. So anyways, that book sort of documents that process. Um, I think the work that you're doing both in and outside of classrooms, that it seems really important to me. Um, I mean, the, the stuff that you, you've been talking about, especially critical thinking and understanding ourselves and our place in the world and being critical of that, um, I think is wildly important. Are there approachable resources that folks should turn to or avoid um, if they want to learn more about how people in the past live in various places? I mean, would you point them? I guess, what's your favorite things to read as far as archaeology goes? Or what? what's the things that you were like, no, stay away? Uh. Um, hmm. <laughs> Uh, good question. I mean, there's so much, it, everything's a mixed bag, you know, like you have to take everything with a grain of salt. But I think there's some great, there's some great work. I mean, sort of uh, popular science books that that I think are very accessible. One of my favorites right now is The Dawn of Everything by uh, Graeber and uh, Wengro. Uh, it's a fantastic book about perceptions of assumptions that we have about the way past peoples did things, the things that, that, um, uh, the assumptions that we have and why they're often wrong about the way people lived in the past. Um, you know, I think there's a lot of misunderstandings or sort of and a lot of political and a lot of reasons why people do this, but like understanding Native American populations perspective on the landscape um, and, and what made sense to them um, uh, isn't the way we assume people in general think that a lot of our assumptions about the way we think people interact are a function of ourselves, not of people in the sense of human beings. Um, you know, we have a sense, and I think, you know, a lot of recent history since the 19, certainly since the 1970s, but probably a little bit earlier, um, has, has emphasized this idea that uh, people are uh, hyper individually competitive, uh, are trying to maximize their success on an individual basis. And uh, there's, you know, people are seeking power over other people. Um, and certainly that's the way economists talk about the world and sort of the assumptions of the, the market economy that's led to a lot of uh, policies and regulation and things, the way things work, which allowed uh, basically have, have made it acceptable that we pay some people hundreds of millions of dollars for things and then other people nothing. The idea that those people are, are more successful than others and they should get paid. Um, when you look at when you look at this, the Wengro and Pettigrew, the dawn of everything, they make a good case that that is really sort of a, a unique perspective of a small group of people, mostly European perspective on the way humans, they think that they assume humans are. 
that isn't actually a generically human trait, that humans are actually uh, far more interested in cooperative and collaborative activities, uh, and that this is sort of a, a disease of ourselves, which means that we, you know, we really have to really look carefully at what the, some of our assumptions about ourselves and why we are the way we are. We don't have to be the way we are. We don't have to have the world with some people making, you know, 99% of gathering all the 99% of the resources and most people getting nothing. It can be a very different world. That doesn't mean it has to be a socialist paradise, but the, the assumptions, the assumptions about the way the world must be just don't, you know, the, the, there are more generic, they're, they're more, they're alternatives. There are many, they're great alternatives that are more common with humanity than, than we like to think. Um, I think there's some great examples of that. And archaeology plays a big role in saying like, look, this is, this, you know, these are, these, Humanness is much different than what our assumptions are. All right, I have one more question, and then I'll I'll let you go. Um, yep. Which of your family recipes on allrecipes.com would you recommend folks try if you had to choose this one? <laughs> That's a good question. <laughs> oh my! Well, my favorite is um, well. So when we started allrecipes.com, we st we started cookie recipe, and people love cookie recipes, which was was. I mean, this is a point in which the internet consisted of AOL. It was the alternative to AOL. So we thought, oh, we'll see what people like. And they like cookie recipes and we're giving us cookie recipes. So we built on that. Um, but then we created all recipes. And we had to like put some recipes into it to kick it off. So I stole all my mom's recipes and put them in there to kick it off. Uh, and now there's some ridiculous large other numbers. But anyways, I, the one I actually put in there is the the Wisconsin um, bratwurst recipe. So how to, how to make bratwurst Wisconsin style which is, you know, beer and butter and onions. And um, to me, that's like, you can't have a bratwurst without, you know, doing it that way. Like it's got to have that that style of, of bratwurst. So that's the, that's my, that's my go-to recipe for bratwurst. And I'd recommend anyone try that one. I appreciate that. That's like cooperative activities, which has been the theme of this whole talk, like in a nutshell is, you know, yeah. sharing recipes. Sharing Sharing's about everything. Like everyone's better off with sharing, you know, like, <laughs> There, there's no reason to hoard information, hoard stuff. Let's share it. The more that it's shared, the more valuable it is. I mean, that's, a, that's a, ultimately as an academic, that's our goal. I think it should be our goal. Is that Our goal is to take our knowledge and share it as widely as possible because everyone's better off through that shared knowledge. Um, hmm. You know, it, it, We're really incentive to publish. And the reason we publish is to give that information away. And, and we want to make give it away for free because I think that maximizes the value of that. Thank you so, so, so much for joining us today. It's been a pleasure. Um, anyone who may have enjoyed hearing Dr. Lippo talk about his work in and outside of the classroom is welcome to stay tuned to future podcasts in this series. There will be more incredibly talented, passionate archaeologists doing interesting work in the world, I promise. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you.